0: The deep rooted fear man wasn't that the cloud was not safe. The deep rooted fear was just the fact that the industry was changing. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In today is a real treat for me because this dude I met at a bar at an industry event a little while back and we had an amazing time. Turns out that he has built a company just like mine that just went public a bit ago and he sold it and he's also been the co-founder of three SaaS companies and he just wrote a book which is so true called, Emotional Side of Selling a Small Business. And If you're starting out in any type of business, you never really think about the exit at first, but it's something to keep in mind. And we're going to talk about that today because Jamison West, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. appreciate it. Dude, I'm excited for our conversation because uh, as I alluded to just a little bit ago, you know, when I started my MSP, which was 11 years ago now at this point, I never really had like an exit in mind. And now when I'm starting to talk with a lot of potential acquisitions because we're the first MSP ever that's gone public and we're acquiring all these and every acquisition that I have a conversation with, there's always emotions that are brought into it, man. Always.
1: Absolutely. absolutely.
0: And now it's like my intro calls are never really, but even though they send the financials over and that's in our standard document request, the first call is never about that for me now. It's always about what... What's, what's your reasoning behind this? You know, where are you at? Tell me your life story. What, you know, and you wrote a book about this too, which is amazing, dude. Tell me about this.
1: Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Like you, I, I started my, my consulting business because I wouldn't have called it an MSP right out of the gate. It was a one-man band, kind of a lifestyle business, um, really trying to help small business owners figure out technology. Um, before, many of them knew much about it, right? So in the 90s, mid-90s. It was, a, it was a minute ago. Um, and it grew and became a support company and, and eventually a managed services company uh, by the mid-2000s um, and started to scale. I started to see like, wow, okay, this is no longer about just me consulting and helping a few business owners. We're really able to do something different. Um, as we grew, um, I, I, I saw an opportunity in... Just really started in 2008, but 2010 is when it when it really came to me pretty heavily that I could grow much faster through acquisitions. So yeah. my first foray in this world was really doing four acquisitions over 22 months, all in the Seattle market, which is where my MSP was. Um, and we went from about eight or nine folks to 40 folks fairly quickly. Um, and that was, you know, that was great. We we really were able to scale up and do some some nice things. My first acquisition was great. The second one was okay. The last one was really bad. Uh, so I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, but I learned a lot in that process. And um, I had a lot of help, a lot of peers. I was in a peer group called HTG back in those days. Now it's called Evolve. Got acquired by ConnectWise. Um, and I, but I was very, very focused on what does it look like to build... Uh, to build an MSP and break through that glass ceiling that, like, E-Myth talks about, like, the 10 people, you know, it's a really, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a difficult thing to do. Um, and ultimately, we recovered from that last acquisition that almost broke us. And uh, I realized that we kind of got to the point where my passion was more in the consulting side or building side. And I kind of, it had become a more operationally mature operational service company. Um not that I'd lost my passion for helping, but it did, it was it, it, I'd been doing it for 21 years, and I was I was ready to look for a change and to mitigate my risk of losing it because I'd almost lost it through that last acquisition. And so I ended up selling. And and ultimately um, I found a great buyer. I talked to multiple potential buyers, but I found a great buyer. I sold in 2016. And what I realized is all of the some of what I witnessed as an acquiring person from the buyers, kind of like you were mentioning about from the sellers, some of what I was witnessing them going through as they were thinking through the process combined with all of the challenges I went through when I did my sale, uh, the process I had to go through. Um, I was like, wow, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, there was a lot of prep work out there. A lot of books I could have read about valuation, finance, yeah. legal, due diligence, but there were, there wasn't a book out there. Talking about, hey, you're going to feel like the baby you raised is part of your identity that you're selling it, and there's the you're not going to be you're going to be making different decisions in your business. Who can you tell about it before you sign on the dotted line? All these challenges that you know, what if there's some legal issue that stops it right in the 24th hour? All these things that uh, were potential challenges for me that I was not well prepared for and i didn't really see a resource out there so that's when i decided to write a book
0: that's awesome man i'm excited because i've already ordered mine you know and there's a reason because i I just had uh, another person on the show who wrote a book too i have a lot of authors on and they're like did you read the book i'm like no and that's intentional because otherwise I tend to be a little bit more commandeering in my conversation, (laughs) and I might just talk more than you, which is not what I want, you know, because I want to spotlight you, but I'm excited to read it because uh, it'll help me dive into the psyche of everybody personally that I'm I'm acquiring, you know, because it's, I don't do that from a position of, you know, I want to be able to go through the process easier. I want to understand really where they're coming from so that it can be a fair scenario. You know, so, yeah. so that we can really meet because it, w- it, it would really bum me out, dude. You know, coming from the position <laughs> of a buyer, and you've been in this position too when you've acquired, it would really bum me out if we went through sale closed, no problems, and that individual didn't really achieve what they wanted to achieve out of that. Yeah. You know, and that, yeah. that's not what I'm in this for. I'm in this to, for a win win and even more of a win on the, on the seller side than I am for me.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and the, the challenge is, is that a lot of folks are going through this and selling. You know, they're they're coming to grips with the fact that you know there's probably you know companies you're acquiring that um, have owners that have maybe done this for a very long time. Our industry is pretty yeah. fraught with people who've been doing this for 20 or maybe even 30 years. Like I own mine for 21 years. They um, may believe it's more valuable than it is, but it's always good to check and know and. Is it enough to retire? So there's all these kind of things, this, these realizations that they go through in the process, and they need to be very, very careful to be super clear around what's the outcome that they need to be happy with the situation when it's all done, and not put themselves through you know negative paces. So no, it's great that you're thinking in that way. It's it's necessary to find the right buyer, right? For sure. Uh, it, you know, from a selling perspective, it, finding the right buyer was really important. I had to find one with integrity. I was fortunate because I, uh, you know, I really wanted to make sure that the folks I was selling to were going to, you know, live up to their word with me, uh, do the best they could. I mean, you you can't promise your employees are going to stay, but do the best for the ones that were the right fit and, and uh, take care of the clients and all that good stuff. So that was really critical.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned one, one thing in what you were just saying that, you know where the the buyer always, or the sorry the seller always feels that they're worth more, you know you said it in, in not so many words it, it was uh, typically speaking, there's a lot of emotion that drives that too. Do you touch on that in your book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think that you, so a couple of things come to mind first of all, um a seller can wor- thinks that working really, really, really hard drives value in the business, but what drives value in the business is revenue and EBITDA and process and maturity and client contracts. Um, and if they're having to work hundred hours a week, that actually devalues the business. And it, it's something that I coach my clients is like, how do you make a sustainable, scalable business that does if, if you're requiring you to do three jobs, then an acquiring party is going to have to hire three people to do your job. <laughs> right? yeah. Like you've got to. So you've got to kind of get to that. You've got to create some operational maturity and have some intent there. So I think one thing is that people mistake hard work for value, um, and it's not. Uh, the second thing uh, is I think that a lot of, you know, uh, I, I, I find that a lot of sellers really believe that they can look at a couple statistics and say, this is what my business is worth. But value is in the eye of the beholder, right? You, I can't determine what somebody's going to pay. I can't say, Rick, buy this coffee cup for $50. You're like, I'll give you five.
0: Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. but
1: it's worth fifty. You're like, what's well, worth five? So guess what it's worth? It's worth five because that's all you're gonna pay for, right? Yeah, you got I it. don't get to tell you what it's worth. You get to tell me what it's worth, um, and and uh, so there is there you know there's some emotion and psychology behind that, and it means that you've got to you know you've got to really be super clear around you know what your expectations are, what you're what you what you're willing to accept and uh, and be super clear about that before you enter a negotiation or have these conversations.
0: Yeah, right on.
1: What's a good way to navigate
0: that? And I'm actually going to use a story here because I'm curious, I know how I am navigating this one right now. But in an example, because you, you mentioned that gap, and I, I see this a lot in our industry too. Because it, with MSP specifically, you know, it's really cool that you have both sides of the coin where you've been an MSP and you've been in SaaS. Right. Yeah. And at one point in time, valuations or what an MSP is worth was looked at very similarly to SaaS before, you know, and those types of multiples and multiples are way higher for SaaS than they are for, for MSPs. And yeah. I've, I've <laughs> seen this to where it's like that, that ideology still exists in the mind of some of the sellers. So I've looked at one the other day and it was like, it was like 2 million in revenue, Right. And it was like, cool. So if I'm looking at your EBITDA, if I'm looking at your seller discretionary earnings, you're worth about one X your revenue, which is fine, which that was like maybe between four and five X the EBITDA of the MSP, which was perfect. You know, that's, that's where you typically see where these things are at these days. And he's like, yeah, no problem. He's like, you know what, but I need four. And I was Like, well, time out. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You're in the wrong business. <laughs> yeah, right, right on. And to your point with the coffee cup, I'm like, dude, how do we bridge that gap? He's like, well, I've been talking to private equity companies, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, because what's your experience there? You know, with, with those kind of because I'm sure you had these being a seller too, right?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The multiples do feel a little higher right now. It's hard to get into value. So again, it depends. It depends on. Depends on exactly what you do because the makeup of every MSP is different. If you're super heavy on product and T N M and project revenue, your multiples likely a little lower than if it's recurring revenue. How strong are your contract? There's all these pieces. Course, parts. Yeah. Another big part of it is what's your revenue and what's your EBITDA. Not so. Yeah, four to five x EBITDA, great. But um, that. You know, I that that's been kind of that uh, three to five has been there for a long time. I mean, that number goes up as the revenue and the EBITDA percentage go higher. So if you can run a more profitable company, and if you can run it on more revenue, that multiple gets higher, right? So private equity companies are not looking at two million dollar revenue MSPs. Yeah, yeah. Most know. of them have have a five million dollar revenue minimum private, equity, you know, for for and yeah. then. You know, and then you kind of become a platform company at ten or twenty million, and then your EBITDA, then your multiple goes up even higher. But it's usually based on multiple of EBITDA, not revenue. So it's been really, really interesting. You know, in our coaching at ConnectStrat, I mean, this is what we help owners figure out: like, what what, what does it look like? Everybody's going to exit their business, right, one way or another, some point. Like, how do we get really intentional about what that needs to look like for you? How do you want to do it? Do you, are you, is it employee by, is it selling to a VC firm or somebody else? Is it, you know, is it, are you giving it to your kids? Are they inheriting the business? Like, what does it look like? When are you going to leave? What does it look like? What does it need to be worth? How are you going to structure the deal? And, um, I, you know, people come into it eyes wide open. That's great. Right now, what we find, there was a lot of folks, and what I kind of write about in the book a little bit is a lot of folks are just kind of seeing another massive pivot in the industry with new risks and security and all these things that are happening and they maybe don't have the energy or technical prowess to navigate this new change. Um, and so they're looking, they're being more opportunistic than intentional. Like they haven't spent the last five years building a sellable company. They're like, wow, maybe, maybe this is something I should be considering right yeah. now. The industry's changing.
0: For sure. It's a good out. And that, that happens across industries too, but that's um how would you describe that? Because that's a that's almost like an awareness, right? Which I guess is generated by an emotion as well. What drives that? Because there, there's some that I feel that have blinders on, right? Some sellers, no matter what industry in you're in, they, they have blinders on as far as what's going on in their own industry. Yeah, and just yeah,
1: yeah. It's just so you're, so you're talking about like the the kind of shift in model and what's happening right now. I, I feel like. You know, so if I go back into my, I started my business, like I said early '90s, in our first or mid '90s. First big shift for me was I didn't start as an MSP; it was more consulting and time and material, right? And and then our first big shift was like creating a recurring revenue model for our managed services, which happened in mid 2000s for us. Everybody had different timelines. We were kind of on the earlier edge, not scary early, but early. And then the next big pivot for us was. Wow, um we don't need servers and workstations anymore. It's all cloud services. So for us, we were way earlier on that than most, because a lot of MSPs still aren't there. But we did that in call it, you know, the, the mid teens, you know, 2013, 14, 15. Um, we were really in the midst of that cloud services pivot. Now it's security. Um, so it's just for me. I was very, very in tune with managed services and cloud services. I was aggressively ahead of the curve doing my, you know, and, awesome. and it created a lot of value in the business. Yeah. If I were in the MSP services business today, I would if I had the right revenue in EBITDA and I and I'd and I planned well personally, it was just me personally, not saying for any other MSP owner, I'm not as adept or well versed in what's happening in the security and threat landscape. As a lot of folks out there that come from a more technical background, so risks feel higher to me. Uh, clients have had their insurance rates triple this year. Like 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 my MSP clients been it's a it's cybersecurity is a thing, right? Yeah. So uh, so it's been interesting for me that that would have been a trigger for me to potentially look at, at mitigating the risk of this business. Yeah. Um, and others, it, it's not mitigating risk. It's a massive opportunity because they're well-versed in it and excited about tackling the problem. So it all depends on your skill set and, and uh, confidence.
0: For sure. It is very similar from what I can see when there was the big on-premise, the cloud shift a while back. You know, yeah. and there was a lot in our industry that were very hesitant, you know, it, to, to move to something that was cloud-based. And it wasn't, the deep-rooted fear, man, wasn't that the cloud was not safe. The deep-rooted fear was just the fact that the industry was changing.
1: Yeah, how do you deliver? I mean, for a lot of folks, like something as simple as their pricing model. I'm charging clients per server. Yeah. And now there are no servers, and they're moving to the cloud, and it's like I don't know how to price that. I don't know how to deliver value. You know, we used to show up at somebody's site with screwdrivers and wrenches, and now all of a sudden. Uh, we're selling office 365 and tell them, I don't know, I'll put it in a ticket with Microsoft. Like how, where's the value in that? Yeah. Um, so the mentality or the shift towards what are you delivering? Um, is a big pivot for a lot of folks who weren't already delivering some higher consultative value because that sticks no matter what. Yeah. No so people doubt. really moved towards just a support system and a lot of those needs have changed you know, significantly.
0: For sure, man. For sure. When you went to sell back in 2016, or you probably decided before then, you know, but actually that's a good place to start. How long were you thinking about your exit before you actually did?
1: So I, you know, I had started, um, it was really, I had started to think about building something I could sell in probably 2008. Like how could I build something that's sellable? And I hadn't made significant progress towards it, but those acquisitions were definitely, which was 2010 to 2012, those were definitely engineered to create revenue and EBITDA that would support uh, a more interesting profile to a potential yeah. acquirer And I believe that most of the decisions that we make to increase the value of our organization are the right decisions for the business. Not all of them, not all of them every day, but most of them, right? Like you could also... We could also uh, really destroy a business by being too aggressive and cost cutting and all those things. But by and large, as long as I have longevity and scalability in mind, those decisions I make to increase the value of my business are the right decisions. So that was a mindset shift for me. Just start uh, building a scalable, profitable business and figure out how to grow and grow and grow. And I, I just added acquisition to organic growth to my strategy.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. I like how you d- hone in on this and you know, the, packing in a couple of words it's almost like almost any decision you make is going to be a good decision for your business when yeah. you look at it that way because it's going to generate either revenue and or profit right either one of that yeah. is going to be a good decision you're right there's a couple of bad ones that you might be able to make if you have certain cost cutting measures but anything that's focused on growth and as we were looking at the last two years too, it was I saw it as a lovely time, man, because so many were pulling back and going into what you're you're describing as these cost cutting measures as a time to double down. And focusing yeah. on growth, man, that's the way to go
1: anytime. Yeah, COVID was COVID created some interesting opportunity. I think a lot of people you know, there, are, there was a lot of fear in early 2020, right? And uh, people were like, what's going to happen to our industry? And really, yeah. we were fortunate, right? The technology industry was impacted positively, not negatively. At the same time, and, and a lot of people did have a temporary negative impact because clients, especially if they were in certain verticals, were hit in the early part of 2020. But as they recovered, and most, the vast majority of MSPs didn't get hit too bad, they also potentially got some PPP money and some other things that really help bolster their business. And the smart ones really, they didn't hoard it, they invested it. And um, it's been an interesting, I've seen some significant growth out of some MSPs over the last 18 months. It's been pretty interesting to watch how they've
0: kind of leveraged
1: this all as an opportunity to shift their model, do more virtual work, hire people who weren't in their local region. It's been interesting.
0: Yeah. It's been really cool to watch, man. I, that fear, I think a lot of a uh, I, I don't know because I haven't read your book yet, but where were some of those key moments to where you're like, am I making the right decision you know in selling my business?
1: Oh, yeah, so you' kind of getting into the into the book a little bit and, I, and I'll just describe a little bit about the book it, yeah. it's um it's written as a fable, so the first two thirds of the book, kind of e myth type style Bob Berger or uh, you know Patrick Lencioni writes in these fables these fictional stories and it's loosely drawn off my story and, and several others like lots of people I we talked to and interviewed um, and we borrowed little nuggets from all of them to make this fable of an individual going through the sale of a business right so that's two thirds of the book it'll resonate with and it doesn't have to be IT services or managers it just happens to be but any small business where it's like wow you know I'm I'm it's getting a little risky or I'm getting a little tired or all these things happen, right? Um and there are several components that you know that our you know Alex, the CEO of our company, the proprietor, runs into over the course of owning his business that happens to be, you know, loosely basically like my boys and my sister, and I use family members as character names. <laughs> so <it's kind> of <laughs> fun. Um but it, it you know runs into um several components like, um, s- starting to be more closed door and a little less transparent with their people because they have to hide what they're doing and they're going through the due diligence or LOI process. Um, not making investment decisions, like not paying a bunch of money for marketing or internal infrastructure or things that don't have direct revenue tied to it. Because ultimately if a sale goes through, that's just money out of the owner's pocket. that The buyer may not even care about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when the owner's always been super transparent and ready to invest in those things and just stops without telling anybody why, um, everybody starts wondering what the heck's going on. So that was a that was a really, I just had another conversation with a friend about this. Um, that's a super, super common problem. Like all of a sudden, behaviors, transparency, decision making change dramatically out of the owner, and he's trying to hide, he or she's trying to hide why. Not out of a lack of integrity, but because you just don't go tell everybody in the business, hey, I'm kind of thinking about whatever I'm kind of thinking about selling its puts the fear of God in it sure. right so uh, yeah, so those types of things are are very, very tricky um, the other so other things that happen um, you know uh you can get whittled down, you have a price in mind, but through conversations or. Due diligence. There's these little things that start to nip at the nip at the amount that you had in mind. Like, oh, the company was paying for my car and my home office and my all these things. Um, so those things that can be pretty challenging as well. Um, yeah. So it's it's it becomes it becomes quite interesting. We're trying to figure out like how do we how do we like mitigate. All of these potential issues. Another one that came up for me was in the 24th hour, there was something kind of buried in the legalities of the agreement that there was a possibility my guaranteed payments, because I had multiple components to my exit, could actually go down if we didn't meet certain thresholds. But I wasn't going to be in the business and had no control.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So that scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Right. So those types of things became very, very problematic. Kind of like a you know,
0: that you have zero influence over. Yeah. You and know. it
1: happens, right? Because, and it wasn't a lack of integrity on the buyer's side. It was just mitigating. In my case, it was mitigating some bank covenants and whatever. we figured out a way around it. It was okay. But all of those things were potentially dangerous to me. And as a seller, I was emotionally invested in the outcome. As soon as the conversation, so it is right in the fable, this is what I talk about. This our, you know, our guy starts thinking about it and then starts going, wow, what would that do to my life? Oh my God, how would that change and now, I, oh, I'm, and now, and all these decisions they start making in the business, at home, and then just mentally, they've started to like they put themselves in a vulnerable position where they're more or less committed to it before ink hit paper. Yeah. Yeah. until ink hits paper, it's not done. It's not done, right? We can talk about it and be hopeful, but um, you can really put yourself in a scary position if you if you aren't careful.
0: yeah, for sure. And then
1: the last third of the book. Um, I went to six people who I'm close friends with, who've been through this through sales of their businesses and we have case studies. So it's, it's, in, you know, so the first third of the fable, the last third is this non-fictional account of six different folks who've, who've sold their businesses and all of them kind of describing some major emotional moment that may have, or possibly did or nearly um, upset the apple cart in terms of their transaction. And suggestions on how they may have mitigated that or what they did about that. Um, so there's a, It's really, really helpful for somebody thinking about a sale to go, wow, I can really prep myself in a way that puts myself in a strong position and, and, and prevents me from fully experiencing that emotional roller coaster.
0: Yeah, no kidding, man. It's good to have an advocate on your side too, for something like that, because I, I see in our industry, a lot of MSPs, but I'm sure this is the case for a lot of small business owners who are looking to sell. They have not engaged with the broker. And they don't even have even necessarily a corporate attorney that can work through the the purchase agreement with them. They're just kind of soloing, going it alone.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a little. Yeah, I would. I'd be really nervous to do that. I, you know, my sales, um, and my acquisitions, I used a broker. Um, in my sale. Um, the same broker I used in my acquisitions was on the other side of the table, so I worked with the same broker through all five transactions. It just one time I was on the other side of the table because they were only buy side. When I sold, I used my CPA, my attorney. I didn't use a broker to sell, yeah. um, and I was perfectly content with that. I didn't. I liked. I liked that methodology. Um, I knew kind of how at that time I knew who the players were, who were potential acquire targets. Um, these days, if I had a certain amount of revenue, I would probably talk to, if, you know, if I were exceeding the $5 million revenue mark, I'd probably talk to a broker yeah. because the, it's less localized now. Uh, people are looking everywhere and, and you kind of get to that size where you can be a target f- from anybody globally. Um, so that, it's hard to find that as an individual.
0: For sure. You also had a lot of experience with that going through the acquisitions yourself too. So you had a a good education around what the marketplace looks like, how the structure of a deal goes, everything from from nuts to soup, you know, it's just, it was a good breadth of experience you had in those two years. So I I would say for you, you weren't walking into it blind when you were looking to sell. You'd been through the process on the other side of the table already four times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it did help very, very much. So,
0: that's absolutely the yeah, case. That's cool, man. You just sold another business too, didn't you?
1: I did. So, um, you know, after, after selling my MSP, um, I've been involved in three different SaaS companies. Uh, one was team addicts. I spent a couple of years with my co-founder and I ultimately divested myself of that venture. And, um, and my co-founder is still running that he was in Seattle. It was a, it was a great project and it's still alive and pumping. And Uh, But the other two that I was involved in, both of them were kind of co-founded with Brad Benner. He actually owned the first MSP I acquired and a good friend, a brilliant guy, all his ideas. So the first one was uh, Smileback. There were were a series of mini projects after I acquired his MSP. And ultimately, the the one that stuck uh, was a customer satisfaction survey type platform and reporting platform, which uh, was rebranded as Smileback about seven years ago. Uh, wonderful growth, great time building that company. I was a fractional CEO. Um, I was kind of the only person in the United States. Our team was principally out of Berlin. Um, and ultimately it was just the right time. Uh, we had a great team assembled. The guy who was running it was, uh, you know, Brad wasn't principally operating it in Berlin anymore. So we had a general manager who was doing great work and it was just a great, Symbiotic relationship with Connectwise, they were quite interested, and uh, we announced the sale a month ago. That's so uh, cool. So, yeah, Connectwise acquired Smileback, which was great. Um, I now I'm also uh, chairman of the board, and we have a couple great. I have a couple of great co-founders. There's three of us that are founders. We have about nine or ten additional staff at Timezest, and so we do scheduling for uh, managed service providers on multiple PSA platforms and Office 365 and. Kind of like a, a similar to Microsoft bookings or Calendly or something like that but deeply dip, deeply integrated to the managed service provider experience which none of those tools do well so that's that's our is we're really very very focused on the workflow of an IT services company
0: I love it man and your unique insight too because you you had an MSP you acquired four more during that process too you've been on both sides of the table now at this point from MSP and vendor everyone who's listening whether you're in IT whether you're an MSP or just a small business. You need to buy Jameson's book. The dude's amazing and just has incredible insight, dude. jamesonwest.com. dot com. Can we get your book there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's the best place to find me. Kind of points to Times S Connect Strat in my book, so so you can find all the stuff I'm doing right on my website.
0: That's there. cool. I love it, man. Thanks for being on, dude. Really appreciate you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Rick.